0: You're listening to the Australian Army Training and Doctrine Podcast.
1: Welcome to our second podcast in the Cove's three part series on amphibious operations. In this edition, we'll be looking more closely at the unit at the heart of the Australian Army's amphibious capability, and that's 2nd Battalion, the Royal Australian Regiment, known as 2RAR. With me is the battalion's Regimental Sergeant Major, Warrant Officer Class 1 Trent Morris. So, first of all, tell us a bit about 2RAR's history and why it's become a focus for amphibious capability.
0: Well, ma'am, the unit was tasked by Chief of Army to develop the amphibious capability and the trials, obviously with the introduction of service of the LHDs and the HMAS tools. So, for the last five years, the Betaine has been heavily embedded in that trial uh, developing the capability along with other units uh, such as 10 FSB, the 2nd Cavalry Regiment, and you know, one RR to a point. So, what we've done is we've developed, and over the last 12 months, as we've looked and gone forward, we identified that the risk for the amphibious operations and the training liability lies within the pre landing force. So, under the new structure, the Chief of Army has determined that we will adopt and become the Army's pre landing force, the amphibious capability. And so as such, we will move from an organisation currently of 570 pers to 300 personnel to provide that pre-landing force. The idea of the pre-landing force is that that's where the risk lies and the training liability in the operation of small craft, sea states one to four, at night coming ashore in an uncertain environment. And so that is why the battalion has been tasked to do that. But secondly, and more importantly, the battalion has also been tasked to remain very much an infantry battalion that is capable of both joint land combat and obviously the amphibious operations.
1: So in order to meet the brief in terms of generating this amphibious capability, what has that actually meant for training for soldiers within 2RAR?
0: Yeah, so we're going into a, a, a new era, which is, is quite interesting. And there's been a lot of rumour and innuendo about what it is and 2RAR you know, closing. It's not the case. 2RAR uh, will be 2RAR. It will change uh, its dynamics and organisation. We'll go to a security company, four platoons, And we'll have an ISR company consisting of obviously uh, pioneers, small boats, uh, reconnaissance signals, and the DFSW will reside in the security company. And we'll also have a reduced signals platoon. So we're going for a more of a specialised approach. And the centre of gravity for the unit will be the insertion of our pre-landing force elements by small craft.
1: So can you take us through those different elements, those different capabilities that you're generating within the battalion, and just describe how they are each contributing to that amphibious capability?
0: Yeah, as part of the advanced force operations in the pre-landing force, well, obviously we rely very heavily on the ISR aspect of that through reconnaissance platoon. And we've also been lucky over the last two years, it's been remiss of me to mention that we've obviously had uh, engineers, two sections of engineers embedded in the battalion, which have done a great job, and they've been aptly supported by 3CR. We've also been supported heavily through a JFT and a JFEC through 108 battery, which has been part of the 2nd Battalion and posted to our uh, posted strength. And they've been aptly supported through 4 Regiment as well, through backfilling of members that have done courses and skills so with the insertion of the isr we rely heavily on our recon and our snipers of which we have four patrols four sniper pairs and we will maintain a jft to uh, provide that joint fires which is that combat multiplier once we've got advanced force operations ashore and we like to try and get them ashore 72 or 96 is good but at least 72 hours forward onto the target to identify obviously our key enemy locations and positions and then provide the commander obviously that feedback as we continue to plan prior to putting the security ashore to set the conditions for, obviously, the beach landing team, which is usually provided by 10 FSB. We work very closely with the ISR, and we've been bolstered, and it's once again remiss of me not to talk about the Navy clearance divers, and they have come up and, as part of the training continuum. They've also completed for the last three years our basic reconnaissance course, and once again they bolster our ability to push you know, our four recon patrols and sniper pairs, and they will off do clearances of beaches, subsurface clearances, and then have re-rolled recently to then provide more recon asset on the ground for the commander.
1: So given that 2RER's composition and capability is unique, what have the challenges been? Well, the challenges
0: have been to remain, you know, very entry-focused and and to have a, a focus on, you know, joint land combat, and then obviously to develop, you know, the way forward with the operations from the LHD, and obviously the LSD with the tools. You know, they're big ships, they're big organizations with large amounts of staff. We've obviously had the complexity too of working to amphibious task group to the Cataf Cliff, who command us for those operations. And so there's multiple levels of command. And then with that comes complexity, but through personality, knowledge and, and robust SOPs, you know, that's developed. You know, so the soldiers are going ashore, they've got the opportunity to plan, insert, and obviously by the command structure and a clear command structure and it, it takes away risk you know, when we put our lads and ladettes into small craft and insert them by night into uncertain conditions.
1: Just describe for us then how soldiers have responded perhaps to that different and unique command structure.
0: Oh, well, the soldiers, once they're on a ship, the ship is very... It's a large ship, though both the ships are quite large, three of them are. However, they are very small, very tight, and when you have in excess of 1,300 people embarked forces plus 400 of these ship's crew... Obviously, space becomes a premium, and so does a process. And so at at that point there, you have obviously the commands of the ship, and when we're in an ARG, amphibious ready group, you have the three ships. You also then have the ATG, the amphibious task group headquarters, and then you have obviously the headquarters of the relevant elements on board. So it can be complex when it comes to planning and obviously implementation of plan. And same with the soldiers. They work at sometimes in cramped conditions. They have to access sometimes when a decision is made it doesn't just have a first and second order effect it goes into a third fourth and fifth order effect and that may be something as simple as moving unleaded petrol from one part of the ship to the other that's to the ship's captain they'll mount a standing sea fire party to combat any type of incident or spill and that is just to move 80 liters of unleaded from one part of the ship to the other so in a battalion that'd be it's a no brainer but on the ship you know ship's captains get a little bit antsy if you start moving volatile liquid around their ship and they haven't given clearance to do that so and the complexity of that. And the ladies and gents have done a really good job in understanding the limitations and being patient with Navy and, as Navy have with us, have been very patient in the way we're doing business. So we've worked hard to establish that rapport over the last five years and I think that's probably been the most important part of amphibious operations is that relationship and the ability to accept each other's differences.
1: Now, you talk there about the importance of rapport and establishing a relationship. Has that meant a requirement for some kind of cultural or attitude shift from the members of the battalion?
0: Ma'am, to be honest, the Second Battalion's always had a reputation of being the quiet achievers. And with that comes a little bit of humility, it comes a little bit of understanding. And so there is friction on the ship every now and then, and it flares, but what I find is that if it's nipped in the bud early and people are responsive and they engage, and all I've asked for, both the Navy and myself, if the soldiers are doing something wrong and they don't understand it, not to fire a broadside initially, pardon the pun first off, is to actually explain to the soldier why they can't do that and why they shouldn't do that, and the guys and girls respond accordingly. And I'm the same with the Navy. As I get round the ship and as we do business, it's about sitting people down because they've got a perception of risk and explaining to them why we do that process, why the process needs to be that way, And once people have an understanding of that, you meet in the middle and we get the task done, so it's the way it's got to be. And that's just built on being basic, you know, basic manners, to be honest, and maintaining a, a level of humility and professionalism, you know, on the ship. And I've been really proud of my guys and girls for the last five years, the way they've conducted themselves, and I'm regularly approached by people who are surprised to say, hey, you've got a really good bunch of guys and girls. And I say, I know that. And it's it's not a surprise to me. I work with them every day. But it's it's always very rewarding when Navy people and all people from outside our command comment on the behaviours and their attitudes of the guys and girls.
1: And this isn't the first time you've worked in the joint space because you were at three RER prior to two RER. So tell us a bit about the challenges of working in the joint space, and perhaps how soldiers can set themselves up best to prepare for working with amphibious capability.
0: There is a number of things you can't control. When I was doing parachuting, I couldn't control the RAF, that's a fact, and I couldn't control the weather. It's two things well out of my control, I I had the Padre there. And same with Navy. So it's, you're not drawing a long bow when we move into amphibious operations, I cannot control the weather, and the Navy will, they're the Navy. But you've got to mitigate both, you know, and The end state is always to get, in my head, to get, meet my CO and Cliff's intent by getting the pre-landing force ashore, but more importantly, the most important thing to me is that I mitigate as much risk as I can to get my soldiers ashore with a limited risk, because there's nothing we're doing in training that's worth the loss of life and or serious injury, so we're quite heavily with that, and we do get busy, and there's a lot of complexities of the operation before you even start, which is the insertion. Now, at 3 A R, there are a lot of similarities between airborne and amphibious operations, and people may argue that, but there is. I've lived both of them in regards to the marry-up with advanced forces, the insertion of the ISR, and then setting the conditions with a small force to secure an air point of entry, and now, in our case, it's a sea point of entry or a beach to have a follow-on force come ashore to do the task, and so there's a lot of similarities there. But to do that, it's complex, and so a lot of the soldiers and that... They're planning a phase which is complex before they even get into their tasks themselves. And yes, it's just the insertion. And people say, hey, it's only an insertion method it is, but it's complex. Especially when you're talking about a deck and dock cycles, trying to do it all under a period of darkness, it's all about time. And as we know in Army, when time compresses, things start to go wrong. So we just need to have our drills squared and wide and make sure it's slick. And that comes through rehearsals and it comes through preparation and planning. So there's a lot of similarities in, in both the units that I've worked with over the time. And I had a bit of a joke with the CO when I first got here. I said, sort I've of just gone from one crappy insertion method to another. Just gone from being thrown around the back of a C-130 to throwing around a landing craft or a small craft and going ashore covered in salt as opposed to vomit. So there hasn't been too much of a difference there. I'm really proud about the way the guys and girls get about it. It's confronting you know, when the sea's up and you're getting into a small craft and you're five to six nautical miles, and even in some cases further off the coast, and you've got to go in and get the job done, and that's what we do. So you know, hats off to our junior commanders, our lieutenants, senior NCOs and the corporals about their, a way to adapt quickly to changes of plan and not kick the can, so to speak. Just get on and get the job done. That's what the talk CO talks about, just get the job done. So in closing with that, yes, they've been, and I've seen our boys and girls really develop in regards to their flexibility and their ability to do a lot with not a lot, I and mean, it's been a really pleasing aspect of my job over the last three years.
1: So you've talked there about complexity. You've talked about the importance of drills, of rehearsals, and also of attitude. Is there anything else that soldiers can do to prepare themselves for working in this space?
0: I think fitness is a large part of what we do, and you know I hate the term because we use resilience and we we throw it out way too much. But that fitness is good for both mental health and it's good for obviously keeping injuries at bay because they do work with some quite heavy equipment in various conditions, and. By having that fitness, it allows when the going does get tough and they are tired, they are wet and soaked to the bone in some cases, it's the middle of the night and it's cold, to still do their job and function as a soldier. So we've worked very hard over the last two years to develop that within the unit. And also the level of detail to trust your junior leaders, that they understand mission command in its purest form, understand the CO's intent and everyone moves forward to, to meet that CO's intent. And secondly, what I want from my soldiers, in all honesty, is I want them to be engaging, I want them to be polite. And I want them to carry a number of skills in their back pocket to get the job done. Um, Because you need people to want to work with you in the joint space. You know, if you are arrogant, if you are dismissive, you don't have a capability. And as such, you are destined to fail. You are destined to fail, and that's a fact. So don't be scared to use your intelligence. Use your brain. Be polite. Be engaging. Sell your capability at every available opportunity. And off we go and do good things. And I'd rather behaviours like that you know, have an effect across Army and it's about taking every opportunity to put the best foot forward for your unit. And that's not me. It's not the CO. We do what we do, but I need my junior leaders, lieutenants, section commanders, platoon sergeants, and our soldiers, more importantly, to sell our capability. And they do that through professionalism and humility, two big key aspects of soldiering.
1: Now, in October 2017, 2RER came under the direct command of 1st Division. What does that mean for the battalion?
0: We've worked some big, long hours as a command team behind the scenes to set the conditions to meet Chief of Army's intent. And we've been lucky. You know, we've had this year, in particular, my last CO, Michael Bathensway, who's a good man, he worked very hard and he fulfilled both the role of CO2 RAR and the Cliff Commander Landing Force, and having to balance two roles. Well, we've been lucky this year where they've implemented now a Cliff at full colonel level and we've been lucky there with Colonel Mal Wells coming into the position with his staff down at ATG they've developed as well and developed a good relationship. And that's allowed my CO to be CO2R full time. And it's what we need. You know, it's still a functional battalion with all the administrative requirements and burden that goes behind the scenes to obviously get our guys and girls into the field. So that's been a real relief, actually, to have that level of command sitting above us. And with effect, 15th of October, we've now, you know, a direct command unit of 1DIV with a colonel. And now through to the Major General and the staff from One Div have been really engaging uh, at all levels through all the cells to make sure that that has occurred seamlessly and we're doing things now to the soldiers on the ground no change they know they've got a Major General there who's very much you know in our corner who's very driven to see the capability go ahead but it's just for us we have just as we're doing things now from little things to big things it's just the first time we've done it but once again through as we talked about being polite and coming up and having a plan and engaging with people, you know, you get the response you want. It's probably a little bit clunky initially, but once we've got an established process, you know, which we've worked hard to do, things have been quite seamless, to be honest. It's been surprisingly smooth. So yeah, it's been a a good transition as we go forward. It's a new command structure, but to the soldiers out in the the companies at the moment, there hasn't been much of a change. What has been a change is the unit. We're going from 570 people and probably the saddest part of my job in the last two and a half years is we've had to let in excess of you know, 140 to 150 soldiers post to other units. And those soldiers have worked extremely hard over the last three or four years to, in some cases, two years, depending on how long they've been in the unit, to develop this capability. And we've had to go to 300. And to do that, you know, we've had to release soldiers and junior NCOs, senior NCOs and warrant officers who are quality people. And it's been sad to do that. But we've dealt with people on an individual level to get them what they need.
1: In summary then perhaps reflecting back on the transition and also the building of amphibious capability within 2 E R, what do you think are the kind of take home messages? What's worked and perhaps what have been the main lessons learned?
0: The joint areas, it's always an interesting area and I think if you can work in the joint domain, uh, there's no real secret to it. It's supposed to, you know, just engaging, being professional, uh, seeking to understand both yourself and understand what you can do well, what you need help with, understanding the other organisations you're working with, what they can provide, and don't be scared to ask them to go along the journey with you. And assist in some cases. Don't just sit back and throw rocks. You know, if they're not meeting the standard that you need them to do, you know, actively engage and seek to help them get to the standard that you need, and we've done that in some cases. In some cases, we've had people help us as well. It shouldn't be about personality. It should be about robust... SOPs and development of doctrine, which we take forward. And the other part is, is education. I think a lot of people have believed that this whole ENVIP piece has resided with 2 RR, which it has through the trial where we've provided both the ground combat element, the LCE for the log, and we've provided the pre-landing force. Now that's going to change with effect next year. We will be the pre-landing force. The eight 9th Battalion, a very decent battalion, will provide the ground combat element out of seven brigade as they go through the is the fourth gen cycle. And that, that'll be interesting. They're a, you know very, very decent battalion and will engage through ATG and one div with them to ensure, and obviously seven SISB as well, that we set the conditions to operate off the ships. Because this the amphibious isn't just about two RR, it's about whole army. You know, we've spent a lot of money on three very big ships that provide an outstanding capability. You know The ability to force project you know, heavy armour in the region It's not something that's been done before. Heavy artillery off the tools, you know, via CH forty seven. And the amount of capability those LHDs bring to defence is, is it's untapped. And two RR understand it. Now it's you know, in closing, it's about the rest of the Defence Force understanding what those magnificent big ships bring to the party.
1: Warrant Officer Class One Trent Morris, RSM of two R. Thank you very much. To find out more about amphibious capability, listen to the first and final podcast in this three-part series and check out our other resources on The Cove. The web address is www.cove.org.au. That's www.cove.org.au. In our final podcast in this three-part series, also available on The Cove, we'll be looking at amphibious operations overseas and Australia's contribution. I'm Captain Sharon maskell Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by the Australian Army and is copyright the Commonwealth of Australia.